All right, Revelation 21, I will be reading verses 9 through 21. So please give your attention as God's word is read. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs its length, breadth, and height, all equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, and the twelfth, amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the streets of the city were pure gold, like transparent glass. All right, so there you have it. The New Jerusalem, a stunning vision to be sure of glory and beauty and splendor as John sees this vision of the holy city coming down out of heaven. Last time, um, i trying to remember when last time was. It's been about a month. Was it a month? I think so. Oh, three weeks. Three weeks. Yeah, we had five weeks in October. All right, not quite a month. But last time we started... Uh, In chapter 21, we looked at the first eight verses. This is the eternal state. This is uh, everything from this point on is all glory and good news and beauty and splendor and wonder as John, after seeing visions after visions of the horrors of this age and the judgments of God pouring forth on the wicked of the earth and the the people of God under persecution and, and dragons and beasts and all these things, he finally now gets a vision of the new heaven and new earth. So now the old creation is done away with. The old creation fled, if you remember, from the face of the one who sat on the throne. When Jesus takes his throne in judgment, the old creation flees. We see this language in Peter where the, the, the old creation is in a sense sort of burned up. It rolls up like a scroll. The old creation is heavenized. It is replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. And one of the things we saw that are characteristic of, that is characteristic of the new heavens and the new earth is the fact that all of the things that are characteristic of this age, death, pain, sorrow, sin, tragedy, all of those things are gone. The new age will be, will be without any of those things. And we see that when God is, we're told here, wipes away the tears from our eyes as we enter into the new heavens and the new earth. God Himself will wipe away our tears. This is language brought right out of, out of the Old Testament as well. And then God, one who sits on the throne, says, Behold, I make all things new. And that word new doesn't mean just new in time. It means new in quality, new in kind, new in character. It is... It is uh, just a a newness. There's a newness to the new creation in which we will never get tired of it. Okay, All those uh, descriptions that people say of heaven where you're going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp for all eternity are, are bunk. They're bogus. 
because we will not be bored in heaven. If you told me I don't even like playing the harp, all right, if you told me that eternity was going to be sitting on a cloud like a cherub playing a harp, I would say, like the Billy Joel song, I'd rather, you know, party with the devils than, than be with the saints, right? But no, it's not going to be like that at all. The new heavens and the new earth will not be boring because God will make all things new. And we are talking about the creator of the heavens and the earth, the infinite God, the one who is infinitely wise, infinitely intelligent, infinitely creative. When he says all things will be new, all things will be new. And then he tells us at the end of that passage that it is done. Everything that has been leading up to this point in redemptive history, his plans, his, his, his program, all of that is complete. He is the beginning and the end point. He Then there's this invitation at the end of the passage where he says to all who thirst, I will give of the water of life, the fountain of life, freely. And to the one who overcomes, he shall inherit all things. And you get the covenant language here. I will be his God and he shall be my son. I will be your God, you will be my people. This is covenant language that God has spoken throughout all of the Bible to his people. His promise, his promise which is as sure as anything can be sure. He will be our God we will be His people. And then the passage ends by showing how, again, the wicked will not be in the new heavens and the new earth. They will be outside. They will be in the lake of fire, which he says, again, is the second death. So that brings us now to this passage this evening as we look at verses 9-21. through 21. So you have a new heavens and a new earth. You have a new creation, if you will. And the centerpiece of this new creation will be the new Jerusalem, right? It's, it's not enough to just have a new creation. You have to have a new city, and a new city with, in which the people of God can dwell. The new city will be the place where the people of God will dwell with God for all eternity. So the centerpiece, then, of the new creation is the new Jerusalem, which is the church of Jesus Christ. And John is going to get this vision of the new Jerusalem coming down, it's holy, and, and then you get a description of its walls, its gates, and its foundations, and all these things. So that's what we'll look at tonight as we see here the new Jerusalem. Uh, really, this vision goes all the way up until, really, 22, chapter 22, verse 5. So we're going to break it up a little bit, um, but we'll look at verses uh, 9 through 21 tonight. Uh, three points pretty basic. There'll probably be more on the first point than any of the others, but first you're going to see a vision of the city in verses 9 through 11. Then you're going to see the walls of the city, 12 through 14. And then John goes on to talk about the splendor of the city in verses 15 through 21. And again, that theme tonight, the centerpiece of the new creation is the new Jerusalem, the church of Jesus Christ, in which God's people will dwell with God for all eternity. So first, let us look at the new uh, the city, the vision of the city in verses 9 through 11. As John here, after seeing a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, in which all things will be made new, in which none of the things which are characteristic of this age are present, John now has a conversation with one of the seven angels. Look again Please, at verses 9 through 11. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone clear as crystal. Now, there's been mention of one of the seven angels prior to this. Of course, this is one of the seven angels that were called forth in chapter 15, in which John gets a vision of the seven angels. Each angel is given a bowl, and, and, and he is to pour out the, bowl, the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth below. So we see that in chapter 15, verse 1. And then after all that, that wrath is poured out, 
Then you see in chapter 17, verse 1, you see, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me. Now, I don't know if this is the same angel. It just says one of the seven. You see one of the seven again. It could be the same angel. I have no, no problem with saying it's the same angel. Either way, it is one of the seven angels who had the bowls of God's wrath. So you see him in 15.1 when he's getting the bowls. You see him again at the end. Uh, it's this angel here in chapter 17 that gives the vision of the harlot, uh, the great harlot uh, sitting on the, the great ugly beast. But either way, it's interesting because if it's the same angel, and let's just say for the sake of argument it is the same angel, this angel first shows John the vision of Babylon's destruction in 17 verse 1, and then later on after the harlot is destroyed, then he shows him the vision of the heavenly Jerusalem. And if you remember when we looked at the vision of the harlot, it was really sort of like a, a tale of two women. right? You had the harlot who's sitting on this ugly beast, and at the very end of that vision, you see the bride as she is adorned in, in pure white linen, and she is then there at the wedding feast of the Lamb. So you've got these, you're continuing this contrast here with um, the harlot and the bride. But now this angel, again, assuming it's the same angel in chapter 21, verse 9, speaks to John. And he says, come up and I will show you some things. Come up and I will show you the new Jerusalem. I will show you the bride's wife. So he describes the, now in my notes here, it's funny because I, I, I abbreviate New Jerusalem with NJ and I have to make sure I don't say New Jersey. Okay? <laughs> because there's nothing holy and pure about New Jersey. Okay? <laughs> the New Jerusalem. Okay? This angel describes the new Jerusalem as the bride. He says, come, I will show you the bride. Or the woman, depending on your translation. You might have the woman there. I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Now, if I say, who is the bride of the lamb, what would, you, what would your answer be? The church, right. So who is the, the bride's wife, the, the bride of the lamb? It is the church. Chapter 19, verse 7 we have there, um, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Again, the wife is the church as the wedding feast is a, is a feast of uh, the bridegroom Jesus and his bride, the church, as they are united and they have this marriage feast and the, the marriage is consummated and they go into the eternal state. We saw it again in chapter 21, verse 2. Then I saw, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the vision of the eternal state of the new creation would be incomplete without the bride, the people of God. As 21 verse 3 says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And again, you see that again in verse 7. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So you have this new, new Jerusalem, the bride coming down out of heaven. John sees this. And again, the contrast couldn't be more clear with the harlot. The harlot is described as gaudy, as flashy, as, as tacky almost. But here the bride is, is pure. She's holy. She's, she's adorned as a wife preparing for her husband, as a, as a chaste woman prepared for her husband. And it's interesting how here you have the fall of the harlot, the fall of the persecuting harlot now makes way for the bride to be uh, for the glorification of the bride. The church in union with Christ is symbolized by this heavenly city. Uh, I mean, we see this language, and I'll probably refer to it multiple times, but in, in Ephesians 5, we know this passage well, um, the passage of husbands and their wives, as Paul is talking about what it means to to walk a worthy walk and how to submit to one another. And he talks about how this, this plays out in wives and their husbands. But 
when he gets to the husband's part in verse 25 of Ephesians 5, Paul there says, husbands, love your wives. And then he says, just as Christ, right, also loved the church and gave himself for her. It's almost as if marriage between a husband and wife that was instituted at the very beginning was always meant to point to the marriage of Christ and his people. How he would be the bridegroom and she would be, the people of God would be his bride. And it's pictured in, uh, in creation between the marriage of husband and wife. So husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That's exactly what Christ did for his people. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. So when you see the bride adorned in pure white linen, it's not her righteousness that she is adorned with. It is the cleansing and sanctifying righteousness that Christ applies to her. He cleanses her by the washing of water by the word that he might then present her to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And then Paul goes on in verse 32, says, this is a great mystery. The marriage is a mystery. I speak concerning Christ and the church. I almost think of, this just popped into my head, I think it's Ezekiel 16, if I'm not mistaken, in which God uh, talks about how he found Israel as a, as a you know, kind of a wayward uh, woman, naked, bloody on the street, and he comes and takes her and cleans her and dresses her and, and cherishes her, and then she commits harlotry. You know, it's the whole story of Israel basically uh, pictured in Ezekiel 16 how you know, Israel played the whore, right? She whored after other gods, and eventually God punished her by the exile. But again, it's this idea of it is God who takes his people and cleanses them and purifies them and then presents him to himself as a chaste and holy bride. So what we see here in Revelation 21 is not a picture of the church struggling on earth. We've seen that enough already through this book. This is a picture of the church triumphant. This is a picture of the church in glory. The bride here is not on earth struggling with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Why? Because all those things have been done away with. Where's the devil right now at this point? He's in the lake of fire, right? Where's death? Death is in the lake of fire. All these things. Sin has been conquered on the cross. The flesh and the devil. Flesh is glorified. The devil's gone. This is the church triumphant. If you remember, I made this distinction before. You've got the church militant. And the church triumphant, the church militant, that's us right now, okay? We are the church militant. We are fighting. Now, we're not like fighting, you know, people. We're fighting against sin. We're fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are in a spiritual warfare. Paul will say our warfare is not with flesh and blood, but with demons and powers and authorities and so on and so forth, which is why we need to take up the armor of God. So that's the church militant. The church triumphant is the church in glory after all of this struggle is done. And that's what we see here. We see the church in glory, the church triumphant. So after seeing this, then the angel says to John, come up, come up and I'll show you. And he takes him away in the spirit. This is visionary language. We've seen this before. John has been captured away in the spirit in chapter 1, verse 10. In chapter 4, verse 2, that's when he's told to come up and see the vision of the heavenly throne room where, the, uh, where, the, where God is sitting and the cherubim are worshiping him and the 24 elders are falling on their faces and then uh, a scroll is in his hand and then the angels are lamenting who's going to open the scroll and out walks uh, the lamb, uh, well, the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he also looks like a lamb that has been slain, and he comes, and he alone is worthy to grab the scroll. So John was whisked up in the spirit to see that vision. John was also whisked up in the spirit to see the vision of the great harlot in 17, verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit. This is prophetic language. John is, is in a sense, you know, spiritually speaking, he is caught up to see these visions. You see this uh, in the Old Testament prophets as well. 
And he's taken to a great and high mountain. And there he is shown the great city, the holy Jerusalem. So first he's told, come up, I'll show you the bride. And when he comes up and sees the bride, he sees the bride as a city, as a great and holy city. So in a sense, the city is the people. You cannot separate the city from the people. Now this idea of being up on a high mountain, this is also kind of always associated with God. God is always associated with high mountains. In Exodus 19, when he's getting ready to meet with Israel and give them the law, where is God at that point? He's on top of a mountain. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of leading you with that one, right? He's on the top of Mount Sinai, right? He descends in a cloud and fire and fury, and, and Mount Sinai turns into like a big you know, pyrotechnic spectacle as lights and thunders and flashings are going on. And of course, all the people are down at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they're terrified because, well, God's there, right? And God's there in a sense in an unmediated way, and they, are, they recognize that we are... We are but uh, dust and ashes, right? Uh, so you see God on a high mountain there. Psalm 48 talks about how, um, you know, he says, come to my holy city, uh, Zion, which is on, or, you know, my holy city on Mount Zion. So God is associated with Mount Zion. And one passage I really want to look at is in the book of Micah. Really, Micah 4 and Isaiah 2, they're, they're almost exactly word for word the same. But we'll look at Micah. Micah is near the end of the Old Testament. If I remember how the minor prophets go, it's Hosea, Joel, Amos, uh, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, right? So Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. In Micah chapter 4. That's on page 1,232 in my Bible, if that means anything for you. Probably not. <laughs> Unless you have a Bible like I do, and, or it's, it's laid out, its page layout is the same as mine. So Micah chapter 4. Here, uh, the prophet says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's almost word for word right out of Isaiah 2 as well. The The point of this, though, is to show how here God in the latter days establishes Zion as his holy mountain and that mountain will be exalted. God is associated with mountains. So John is taken up in the spirit to a high mountain and he's seen the great and holy Jerusalem coming. It is descending out of heaven from God. Again, the church triumphant coming down out of heaven to populate, if you will, the new creation. So the church here, the new Jerusalem, has been glorified, right? Holy Jerusalem. Now glorified, right? That's the final stage of salvation, right? Salvation is a process that begins when we come to faith. We are proclaimed righteous. We are justified by grace through faith alone. And God declares us righteous, in his sight because of the righteousness of Christ applied to us. Then we are being made righteous as the Holy Spirit dwells within us and sanctifies us and, 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 and we work and put off sin and put on righteousness and walk in newness of life and walk by faith, not by sight. The Spirit will sanctify us. God will then perfect us in his work. And then when Christ returns, we are then glorified. We are given glorified bodies. Our flesh becomes incorruptible. It becomes spiritual, powerful, glorious. 
All of these things Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. We are glorified. This is the, the, the final point in our salvation, if you will. So, you know, we, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And when we are glorified, we will be saved. So here the new Jerusalem has been glorified. You see the holy Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem has been exalted. She is put up on a high mountain. And she has the glory of God, if you will, shining about like precious jewels. You see here uh, her, the glory, uh, what is it, verse 11, having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Just some passages from the Old Testament. So, Remember when we started Revelation, I said in order to understand Revelation, you need to know the Old Testament. So that's, this is why. Okay. So Isaiah chapter 60. We're going to be, we're going to be working our... We're going to be in, in Isaiah a bit and Ezekiel a bit. So keep those bookmarked or, or what have you. Isaiah chapter 60. Again, this is just to show the glory of the holy city. Here in Isaiah chapter 60, the prophet, speaking for God, says here in verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and the deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And again, you can flip over now to Ezekiel 43. So here in Ezekiel 43, really Ezekiel 40 through 48 is Ezekiel's vision of the, of the temple, the final temple. And in Ezekiel 43, verse 1, uh, the prophet here says, Afterward, he, probably an angel, brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chebar, and I fell on my face, and the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is a counterpoint to, I believe, earlier in the book of Ezekiel when the glory leaves the temple, right? Ichabod, the glory is gone, right? The glory left the temple when Israel failed and, and, and continued in their apostasy and sin, God's glory leaves, right? And now God's glory returns. Another fly. I'm not going to eat that fly. I'll make sure. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> that way. <laughs> Had enough bugs in my diet. If you weren't here for that, you weren't missing anything. <laughs> uh, let's just say I cacked and gagged for about five minutes. It was awful. Oh, man. <laughs> So again, the glory of the Lord filling the temple. So the glory of God shines about the temple. And again, this, the, what we see here in these first few verses, in a way, brings to mind what you see at the beginning of Ezekiel's temple vision in chapter 40. Uh, again, if you think about it, the way Ezekiel's structured, Ezekiel 38 and 39, that's when he gets the vision of Gog and Magog in the great battle. And then once Gog and Magog are destroyed, then... Uh, Ezekiel, in a, in a lot of ways, like John, is caught up in a vision. So in Ezekiel 40, uh, verses primarily verses 2 and 3, but I'll read verse 1 as well. Ezekiel 40, verse 1, In the 25th year of our captivity, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was captured, on the very same day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me, in the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. On it toward the south was something like the structure of a city. He took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. So 
Just as Ezekiel, after the defeat of all of God's enemies, is caught up in a mountain to see a vision of a city, John, in a very like manner, is also, after the defeat of God's enemies, he is caught up to a high mountain to see a holy city. So again, as we conclude this verse, first point here, the vision of the city, the city, the church, will be the centerpiece of the new creation. It, after the new creation is introduced, the new city comes down, the new Jerusalem, and it will be God dwelling with His glorified people forever. That will be uh, the vision that we will see as we move forward through these verses in the other passages that we have yet to look at. So that's the vision of the city. Now we're going to see the walls of the city. As John, after he sees this vision, is now given uh, some, some insight into how the walls and the cities and the gates and the foundations are structured. So he sees the city coming down out of heaven in verses 12 through 14, and that the city has walls and gates. So verse 12 of chapter 21. Also she, that is the great city, New Jerusalem, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the wall of the city is described as great and high. So very thick, very high. And she has 12 gates, three on each side. Because we're going to find out that the city is cubular. Okay, its length, its breadth, and its height are all equal, as John will see. So on, the, on each facing wall is, it's considered one wall, right? But on each facing wall are three gates, three on east, North, west, and south. And on each of these gates is written the, 12 tri- the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. I would quiz you, see, who can name all the 12 sons of Jacob? <laughs> Reuben, uh, Levi, uh, Judah, I'm missing one, Reuben, Simeon, okay, Simeon I think might be, no, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Then you have Dan, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, uh, Joseph, Benjamin, did I say Dan? I think I said Dan, darn. Um, what's that? Naphtali, okay. And Gad, okay, there you go, thank you, okay. See, I knew if I started, you'd get me there the rest of the way. <laughs> so you've got the 12 tribes. Now, when you think of a wall, what does that bring to mind? A wall, <laughs> keeping people out, right. A wall is defense. It, it, it's, it, it provides separation. It keeps people out. Now, interesting, what we'll see, we're not going to see it tonight, but in the next time, I believe it's verse uh, 25. Yeah, verse 25 of chapter 21. The gates shall not be shut at all by day. So there's gates on these walls, but they're not closed. In other words, the city's not worried about anybody coming in to, to take it over, okay? Why is that? Because, well, the enemies are in the lake of fire, right? We saw that earlier, and, and, and there's angels at the gates too. So, so it's not like anyone's going to break in here. You've got angels at the gates, 12 gates, all these gates, and they're named for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and these gates are guarded by 12 angels. Now... So this is the city, the New Jerusalem, in glorification, the church militant. Remember, if you will, back in chapter 11, John is told to measure the temple uh, in chapter 11. And when he's told to measure the temple, he's told not to measure the outer court because the Gentiles will be treading out there for 42 months. So you've got a picture there. This idea of measuring sometimes carries the idea of of protection, so you've got a you've got a city or a temple that is, in some senses, protected, but in some senses is being trampled. It's being it's being attacked. At the same time, it's being preserved. Again, that's the idea of the church uh, militant, the church that is 
preserved by God, but also facing persecution from without. But here, there is no sense of that at all. It's walls, it's gates, it's guarded by angels. All of it is very, very secure. Also think of Eden after the fall. If, if, if Eden is considered, in a sense, a, a temple, a garden temple of God, when Adam is cast out, what does God put at the garden to guard it? An angel, right, with a flashing sword as he's guarding the entrance to the garden. Uh, again, not- you know, interestingly enough, that is on the east, right? They're cast out east of Eden, meaning that that entryway would be facing east, which is how the temple was. The, the temple entry was always facing to the east. So you've got a cherubim, an angel, guarding that gate as well. And when the Israelites are told to construct the tabernacle in Exodus, in Exodus 26.1, you find out that the curtains that guard, this is going to be significant in a moment, but that the most holy place where God dwells, right? That's the most holy place in the tabernacle in the temple. The most holy place is also a perfect square. Its, Its length and its width are also equal. And when they put the curtains that separate the most holy place from the holy place, on the curtain, guess what's on the curtain? Designs of cherubim, right? Cherubim are woven into the curtain to kind of give you that reminder of the fact that God's space is guarded by angels. Revelation 21.21, the 12 gates you see there are, are, are pearl, pearly gates in a way. Uh, 25, verse 25, we already mentioned this. The gates are, are not shut at all by day because uh, there's no night there. Um, so you've got this imagery here of 12 gates, 12 angels guarding. Another interesting comparison here too is the way the gates on the city are arranged brings to mind also the way how when Israel was marching in the wilderness, right, in the book of Numbers, the people are numbered, and they're, then they're arrayed around the tabernacle. So the tabernacle, of course, right, that's, that's God's dwelling place, and around the tabernacle are the tribes of Israel, right? And you've got three tribes on each side, right, on each of the four sides. And when they march, the tribes march along. So you've got the tabernacle you know, when it's disassembled, carried by the Levites, and you've got the 12 tribes in order, marching. And when they encamp, then they, that's how they camp out. So in a sense, you've got this imagery of how you have the holy city with 12 gates on each side. It's, it's arrayed in a lot like the way that the tabernacle would be guarded by the 12 tribes of Israel when they were encamped. So the wall has 12 gates, and the city also has 12 foundations and the foundations so the gates have the names of the 12 tribes of israel the foundations have the names of the 12 apostles of the lamb again you know what is the foundation of the church we saw this a little bit earlier this morning ephesians 2:20. the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets with jesus christ the cornerstone when Peter, in Matthew 16, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And and then Jesus says, you have well spoken, Simon Barjona. You know, God revealed that to you. And upon this, this rock, this rock of your confession, the foundation of the confession, I will build my church. So the architecture of the city, with its walls, its 12 gates, with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and its foundations with the 12 apostles of the Lamb, it really kind of sets a picture here of the full number of God's people, both Old Testament and New Testament, and how they will live in security of God's protection. The walls and the angels all guarding the city, even though there's really no need to guard the city, but it's just showing you how this city will be impregnable None of the things that have been cast out of it will ever get into it. So here you have the church triumphant. It is an awesome sight to behold, as opposed to the church militant in chapter 11. The walls and the gates symbolize, as again, not so much protection. It does symbolize protection, 
but it also symbolizes separation. Everything on the outside of the walls and the gates has been cast out. It is all the evil, all the wickedness in the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Inside, people of God dwelling in security with God himself. And now, finally, let us look at the splendor of the city in verses 15 through 21. So after hearing about the walls and gates and foundation of the city, John here is given a reed now to measure the holy city. Again, remember uh, how Ezekiel was given the task to measure the, the temple in Ezekiel chapter 40 here. John is given the task to measure the new city. And again, we mentioned this before, but the city, when it's measured, turns out to be a perfect cube. 12,000 stadia in its length, its width, its height. Now, some translations may translate that number for you, and you get essentially 1,500 miles on a side. Okay, I mean, Not quite 1,500, but whatever it actually works out to. But the, the number 12,000 is significant. Okay, It's significant. Um, now, some will see this, obviously, as a literal 1,500-mile cube to a side, uh, but really what you have here is, is uh, symbolic of the perfection and the magnitude of the people of God. Again, in, in Revelation, we've seen the number 12 many times. What does 12 signify? It is the people of God, right? 12 gates, Israel, 12 foundations, the apostles. 12 is the people of God. And also here, the cubic nature of the city, as we said before, reminds one of the most holy place, which was also a cube. Perfect square was the most holy place. So really what you have here, in a sense, is the new creation is the entire cosmos of the new creation basically is seen as one giant most holy place. Right? You've got a perfect cube of, of you know, you know 12,000 stadia on each side, length, height, width. It's this enormous cube. So basically the entire new creation is filled it's like one big temple of God, right? And we'll, we learn later on there's no temple. Why? Because God's there. God's there in the temple. There's no need for a temple. Verse 22, I saw no temple in the city. Why is there no temple in the city? Because the city in itself really is, in a sense, a temple. It is a perfect cube, and God dwells there with the Lamb. They are the temple, it said. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's a wall. The walls are also measured to be 144 cubits. Again, what's 144? If you do your math, right, what's, what's the square root of 144? 12, right. 12 times 12. So the wall, the, 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 the length, height, and width, it's 12 times 1,000. And the height, the, the, the height of the walls itself are 12 times 12. Everything about this city is based on the number 12. Again, symbolic of the people of God. John also notes that the foundations of the city are adorned with 12 precious stones. I could read those stones again if you want me to. <laughs> You've got jasper, sapphire, chalcedony, emerald, sardonyx, sardius, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysoprase, Jacinth and amethyst. I think the only ones I know there are amethyst and emerald. Amethyst is kind of like a purpley stone, right? Emerald, of course, kind of green. Um, is it yellow? Okay. Yeah, yellow. Okay. But these are all precious stones. These are all precious stones, and the found, each foundation is is laden with these stones. And again, in Isaiah fifty four eleven. You don't need to turn there. I'll turn there and I'll just read it for you. You can mark the reference down if you like. But Isaiah 54, verse 11. O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. And again in Ezekiel 28, you see this imagery again. Ezekiel chapter 28. How fast can I, how long can I keep talking until I 
get to Ezekiel 28. There we go. In Ezekiel 28, verse 13, um, this is the prophet speaking. You are in Eden. The gar- this is a lamentation to the king of Tyre. But it's also refer- it's believed to be a reference also to Satan, who is the power behind the king of Tyre. But he says, you are in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, the topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. Think also, if you remember how when the priest, the high priest back in Exodus, right, when he, his part of his garb, he had a breastplate, okay? The high priest would have a breastplate and it would have three rows. Wait, was it three rows or four rows? It's four by three, however you want to figure it. I forget, I can't remember if it was four rows of three or three rows of four. Either way, he had 12 stones, okay? There were tw- he, had, he, he had on his breastplate 12 individual stones, and each stone had engraved on the stones one of the names of the tribes of Israel. In other words, as the priest enters into the, high, in the most holy place, he is as the representative of all the people of God. And he brings all of their names before God and stands in the presence of God as their representative before God. God And here you have in, in Revelation 21, the foundations have these stones. It kind of calls to mind this priestly breastplate, which was adorned with 12 precious stones representing the people of God. And, and Eden itself, it, the beauty of Eden had much, you know, the gold was the finest gold that you saw and all these things of Eden. So all these stones are, are meant to show forth the splendor of the new city. And in fact, John finally sees that these gates, the gates of the city, this is where you get the term the pearly gates, right? Each gate was carved by one, out of one pearl. The pearly, the pearly gates and the streets of gold, right? You hear from all the old songs about how, what heaven is like. So he sees, again, all of this just speaks to the magnificence and splendor of the holy city. I mean... We can't even get potholes filled, right, in the big cities. And here you're going to have streets of pure gold, right? We can't even get, you know, particularly in big cities like Chicago, you can't even get, you know, walls rebuilt. But here you've got pearly gates, streets of gold. Yeah. Oh, street of gold. Yeah, did I say streets? Yeah, street of gold. My my bad, street of gold. I'm trying to make more streets. Yeah, that's, that's a city boy for you. All right, you want to... Get the union guys working. We need to make more streets. <laughs> a street of gold. A street of gold in pearly gates. Yes, my, my, my correction there. Again, all of this just speaks to the splendor of the city. The foundation laden with precious stones. The pearly gates. The street of gold. All of this is just a, a glimpse of the splendor of the city. Now, again, this is visionary language, right? This is what John is seeing. And if this is a splendor, a, a, a splendid vision, think of what the reality will be like. Right? The reality is going to far outstrip the vision that John sees. And, 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 and the glory of how we, the glorified people of God, will be dwelling with God in the new creation will far outstrip the glory that you see here, even in these verses. So what was said of the city is said of the church. Her splendor and glorification will be breathtaking. Again, consider how Jesus, when he purifies the bride by the washing of water with the word and presents her as a pure and spotless bride in Ephesians 5. So as we bring this to a close tonight, the new Jerusalem is the ultimate realization of what the Old Testament temple and priesthood pointed to. In this passage, we see in a sense the fulfillment of Ezekiel's temple vision. And the whole world is God's temple. The whole of new creation is God's temple. He will dwell with them because there will be no temple. Because the Lord God Almighty, the Lamb, will be there as the temple. And the temple here is portrayed as God dwelling with His people. That has always been what the temple represented. 
The temple always represented God dwelling with his people. God dwelling among his people. Jesus Christ, who is, who is God incarnate, he says himself in John 2 that his body is the temple because it's the dwelling place of God. The church is described as the temple because we have the Holy Spirit within us, the dwelling place of God. And now we're going to see in the new creation, the dwelling place of God will be with his people for all eternity. And this ought to, you know, as we talked about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, the resurrection, the idea of the resurrection fueled Paul's hope, right? He talks about in that passage how if there's no resurrection from the dead, why do I face peril every day? Why do I feel like I die daily? I'm under peril and in danger every hour, he says in 1 Corinthians 15. And why would I do that if there's no resurrection from the dead? That's why he says, but Christ now is risen from the dead. right? And therefore, I labor. I labor knowing that my labor in the Lord is never in vain. right? You can work and you can... It doesn't matter what happens to you in this life. It doesn't matter what happens to you in this life because this is what awaits the saints of God is dwelling in the glorious new Jerusalem with God and the Lamb for all eternity. And if that does not give you encouragement, if that does not give you comfort, if that does not fuel then your Christian walk, I don't know what else will. I honestly don't know what else will. The, the glories of, of this ought to encourage the weary believer as they continue in our walk in this life. That's all I have for tonight. Uh, next time, Lord willing, in two weeks on the 20th, we'll finish chapter 21. Uh, only five verses, so that, that'll all go quickly, right?